Having a Gas is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today I'm having a gas with Pedro Bronfman, a music composer who works in film, TV, and video games. Pedro is perhaps most well known for scoring the Netflix series Narcos, and has recently had success composing the score for the video game Far Cry 6. Thanks for coming on, uh, Pedro. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you're in, thank um, you for having me. No problem. I'm in LA. Yeah, yeah I'm originally. Yeah, exactly. I'm originally from Brazil. I grew up in Rio, but I've been in the US for almost 24 years altogether. So more than half of my life I've been in the in, in the States. What was, um, what, what's, what's it like growing up in Rio? How's the, how's the culture there different to LA? It's it's very it's very different, and also they it, they were very different times. I think I think growing up in Brazil right now is different than when I grew up. I I'm 45 now, so when I grew up there, it was a a different place. But it's I, I love Brazil. I still have a deep connection. We were having I was had dinner with some Brazilian friends yesterday, and we were discussing like even though I've been in LA for 20 years, I still have that feeling when I go. We were talking about not being there since the beginning of the pandemic and everything. And when I get, then I, I feel like when I land in Rio, I still feel like, okay, now, now I'm home. You yeah. know, even though my family's here, my kids are here. So my life is here. I have no objectives or plans of going back to, to Brazil ever, or at least in the next several years of my life. But, but it's, there's, it's still that feeling that you grew up here, you were raised here and it's like where, where home is in, in a way. That ne- that's a, f- a feeling that never leaves you. It always feels like you're coming back. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, especially, yeah. I th- and, and I think it's a common feeling with a lot of expats and, and people who leave, especially, I think, Latin American countries because it's like such a different way of relating to people and to family. And it's like you're much more, you know, I think here in the U.S. you grow up and it's already, you know, when you're 18, you're leaving home, you're going to college, and then you, you build your life and your career wherever your life takes you, you know, you're, people are more practical about it. I think Latin Americans and, and South Americans are more, they tend to stay at home during college and stay at home until they get married, maybe with their families. It's, it's a, a bit of a different relationship. Wow. I mean, maybe it's a big question, um, but why do you suppose that it's still as, as close knit over there? I think it's the, I think it's the culture. I think it's just the way it's ingrained. I mean, really, uh, to, I, I don't know, but you're, you, I feel like you're raised, even though I'm third generation Brazilian, I mean, my, obviously my ancestors are all European and mostly Eastern European. It's like some Portuguese and then Russian, Polish, and they were all moved to Brazil in the early 1900s. And but my grandparents were already born in Brazil. But it's just, a, I think, a different way. I, I don't know if it has to do with the culture and with religion. I mean, it's a very, it, it, it's a different just a different way you're raised. And I think also this thing of like the, the mother being more, you know, uh, closer to the kids and not wanting to ever go away and the kids feeling an obligation to, to take care of their parents later. I don't, I don't, to be honest, I haven't been thinking about that, but it's, yeah, it's an interesting difference. Well, I know that it's a, it, that was the case for my grandparents' generation. You know, you would expect it to stay back home. But then in the 20th century, um, Western countries like the UK and the US experienced a great degree of just huge economic growth yeah. to the point where before that, it would be seen as absurd to leave home and attempt to live independently at the age of 18. Yeah. 
you know, so. Um, and and well, maybe it's just that, maybe it's just that we are a couple of generations behind because since we were colonized by the, the Europeans much later and, and our development started later and we were, a, I don't, maybe, maybe that's a good, a good point. Maybe in a, a couple of generations, I, th I feel like every generation we're getting more and more practical and more and more, more self-sufficient now with the pandemic, everyone is at home with Zoom and things. So maybe the, that, that distancing is natural and it will just happen as, as, as we move forward. Yeah. So I suppose we'll sign up to, uh, we'll spend three years reading about history and economics and then Pedro and I will reconvene to do, uh, explore the exactly. uh, cultural differences between Brazil and the US. But um, we'll stay focused on uh, you for now. And uh, so you, what age were you when you moved to LA? Uh, I moved to LA, I was 25 years old. But before I went to school, when I was 18 years old, I moved to Boston to, to go to Berkeley College of Music. Yeah. So, so I was there for almost four years and then I moved back to Brazil for a couple of years. And then I moved here when I was 25. Berkeley yeah. is a much beloved musical institution. Um, and I saw that. Uh, did you pick up your uh, diploma from Chick Corea? I did. I yeah. did. Exactly. He, he was the commencement speaker and the, the honoree for my ceremony and, and I, and I've always been a, a big fan of, of chicks playing and all the, I mean, he's done so much in so many different styles. He was really a very, very talented. And from what I hear, a very good person. So, but yeah, yeah. he was the one who, who handed me my, hmm. my degree from Berkeley. So it's like the kind of magic touch to send you off into uh, the world to, uh, yeah, become a, to become a great composer. What was the experience of Berkeley? Like, what were those four years like? It, it, they were very interesting and very, very educational, obviously. I, I had no plans of or any idea that I would eventually end up doing music for film and TV. I didn't go there to study film scoring. I was primarily interested in performance and composition. And then I ended up taking a lot of jazz arrangement, like big band arrangement classes like that at Berkeley too. But I did study quite a bit of, of composition, uh, but my focus at the time was really playing jazz and playing the electric guitar and the nylon string guitar, which were my two main instruments. And I thought I would be a, a touring musician and a session musician and a, maybe a music producer, but I had no, no plans or any ideas that someone could make a living writing music for film. You know, I, I had never thought about it. I've always been passionate about film and well, primarily film because at the time TV shows weren't as good as TV shows are right now, I believe. Uh, yeah. And Uh, but I had, I, I really hadn't planned that and we can get into it, but they were a series of, of things that ended up bringing me into this. And I think I found my, the, the perfect spot. So not only you have to have the preparation and the, the education and be, to be, to be a composer and to be a film composer, but also things have to line up and you have to get lucky along the way because uh, it's, it's a competitive and, It can be a hard field to get into, especially nowadays that everyone knows it's a, a, a good career in the music business and the music business has changed so much. It's so hard to be a, an artist and, and have your, you know, just by yourself or have a record company behind you. And anyways, we can get into that too, if you'd like. Yes. And it's an interesting observation though. And you've hit a couple of points that, um, that I've been wondering about 
for a few years. The first one is that you have something in common with another one of the prolific um, screen composers of the age, which is uh, Ludwig Jorensen. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his surname. Um, uh, he also started as a jazz guitarist with no intention of becoming a, a film composer. Is that coincidence oh, really? or is there something that happens to people? I mean, maybe it's associated with what you just said, which is you go to music school to try and be an instrumentalist. Yeah. And then people kind of figure out the live aspect of music isn't what it was and looking for some security going into composition? Is it something like that? I think so. And I think also it, it goes a lot with your background. I grew up playing a lot of different instruments and with Brazilian music and my dad listened to a lot of classical at home and I was really got into jazz in my teenage years. It's like any music that was for at that time, any music that were, was worth listening for me was like between 56 and, and 65. And that's the it's Miles Coltrane, Dexter, that was all this, the horn players. And I really became obsessed with, with jazz for like a good 10 years of my, of my life. What was so the first jazz also, record that really woke you up to jazz? What was the first experience? Uh, well, I sort of entered because I came from more the, the rock and the heavier music. So I, I sort of was led into it more through the fusion world to then become more of a purist in the, in the, in the jazz world, you know. But uh, I started listening to a lot of like John Schofield, uh, Pat Metheny, Scott Henderson, a lot of guitar players that are like very jazzy, but more with a rock and roll, maybe with a rock and roll sound, you know, because mm-hmm. I was coming from a rock and roll and I started studying with a very good teacher uh, in Brazil. And he really started pushing me towards that, the more sophisticated, like opening a little bit, opening up my my head and my ears to like more sophisticated harmonies and more, which is very, pre- I mean, they are very present in, in Brazilian music. It's, if you listen to Bossa Nova, the harmonies are very intricate. They're like, jazz standards you know yeah. so i was already used to hearing that but then i really started wanting to to play that and to be able to play over chord changes and things like that. so i think the background and i think ludwig is the same way like the the diverse background and and you know the the, the interest in like other instruments and and exploring in the studio is what ends up allowing us to have the tools that become very valuable when you're when you're scoring different projects because each project is a different thing you need maybe a different set of tools different type of music and the more experience you have the the better the better it is but i i I had no idea he was also a a jazz guitarist and landed in in this world so um you exited berkeley still um convinced let's say that the destination was to be a session player um and somewhere between that and getting your first brief as composer what happened when did you decide on the new direction uh it was a gradual thing i I moved back to brazil from berkeley and then i i put together i had a few different bands playing like latin jazz and and instrumental music and i was playing like six nights a week in in Mm -hmm. restaurants and bars and and had a few interesting gigs did a few some some touring and I recorded my first album, uh, which was a, like a jazz instrumental album with like some of the top players in, in Brazil. And I started meeting a lot of these players that were like my, my idols, like the really good instrumentalists. And seeing sadly that some, somewhat what a struggle it was to be, even if you're like at the top of your, you know, your field in, in, in an instrument, especially in Brazil, how hard it was to make a living playing 
instrumental music, let alone, but but even playing yeah. touring with with other musicians, with singers and things like that. And I started feeling like I was 22 years old and I was playing with some really good players who were like 55, 50 years old, 45 years old. And they all seemed to be jaded and a bit, you know, o- over, over that. They didn't really, I mean, they would play four hours a night to get very little money and they all were a little burned out. And I'm like, I started questioning not only... I realized that I wasn't that happy playing six nights a week and, 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 you know, to people who a lot of times weren't there to listen to us, they were there to, to eat their dinner and we yeah. were more the, the background uh, music. And then I, I started questioning some of that uh, and I started becoming more and more interested in the studio. And I thought I would like mostly produce records. I, I produced a couple of things. I started working with a, a small label in Brazil and and then I met my girlfriend at the time. I was 24, I think. And she wanted to come, who's my wife now, and she wanted to come to the U.S. to study filmmaking. She was just finishing college in, in Argentina, and she spent some time in Brazil. We met in Brazil. And then she wanted to come to the U.S. She wanted to go to New York. And I'm like, I, I, I think it would be right for me to go back to the U.S., but I don't think I would go to New York. I lived for four years in Boston. The winters are are terrible let's yeah. how about we go to california so it, it's it's how we ended up here 20 years ago it's going to be 21 years in december and, uh, and so what was your wife's name sorry daniela and so was daniela looking for the kind of new york film scene and of course because la is hollywood as well but was she yeah. looking for a very specific style of yeah i think she had a she had a dream to study at NY Film School because she wanted to. She wanted to go to film school to do at least a, either a, a postgraduate, like a, a graduate uh, program in in film, or do take some courses, or just try and try and work. But at the time, we we didn't have visas, so we needed to be associated with a with the school. So we both ended up enrolling. But yeah, I think she's more, much more into the 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 indie, the more artsy uh films you know than than the mainstream hollywood films uh but i mean we've we've been here 20 years now and and we love i couldn't think of myself living in new york i love california it's a more laid-back place i love visiting new york but it just it it has an energy that just makes me antsy and makes me i'm I'm, i feel like i'm always stressed out in new york if i was living there it wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't be great for me you know, I saw something recently that really finely articulated the difference between East Coast and West Coast culture, which is, do you know the um, NBC sitcom 30 Rock? Yeah. Yeah, yeah they, they did the, um, the live show and they did one on the East Coast, a live episode, one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. Oh, and yeah. On the East Coast one, every time they brought in a guest star like Matt Damon, John Hamm, the crowd goes berserk and everyone, you know, applauds every time someone comes on. And yeah. the West Coast, it was super quiet. Yeah, everyone. So they like they see it. They see every all of those guys on the on the streets. So they're, yeah, they're too cool for the for superstars, I guess. Yeah, and no, uh, so- yeah, but it's very different. Of course, there are things about LA after being here twenty years, and the whole thing about the industry, and uh, some sometimes it, it it can be tiring too. But I love California. I love especially Northern California. Someday maybe we'll. We'll go there, but we're very Pasadena is a is a cool place. We moved here recently, and we we're really enjoying. Yeah, 
So it's been it's been going well for twenty. Well, not I don't know if it's going been going well for twenty years, but we're twenty years in, and it's been going well recently. Um, so where was the point at which you started to make that migration into getting you know getting briefs and and actually getting the gig as a as a film composer or what came yeah. first? Yeah, that was actually associated with your first question. I think I, I skipped that part. I stopped early earlier. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it was a, a trend. So I, we moved to, to California. I enrolled at UCLA, the, the, the music production. And then I saw that all the, the, like my now wife's friends were all like making shorts. And I was sort of the, the, the token musician in the group, you know? So I was scoring all of their little shorts and I was making music for all of the shorts. And I felt like I really had the, the sensitivity. I mean, I grew up very much into film. And it's funny that I never just made the connection that, oh, I could maybe be a, a, a film scoring guy. I just It never occurred to me, to be honest. Uh, so I started scoring some of the shorts. And then I switched my, my, my program at UCLA to the film scoring program, which we were recording with musicians every two weeks and, and actually scoring scenes and doing things like that. And I really felt... Obviously, I had had training in, in composition and in orchestra. It's not like all of a sudden, now oh, I'm going to become a, a composer and I've never composed before. So I, I, I had experience in that, but I really felt it was clicking with the, like the images with the, with the music and that I had that maybe that was my, my path. I had done some uh, jingles and like music for commercials in Brazil even before moving here. Uh, and then it started really a, a, a phase of like studio exploration becoming better at the, cause I hadn't really used computer in music that much. I was more of a pen and paper guitar mm. piano type of type of guy. And, and I, when I would go into a studio, there'd always be an engineer there. So I wasn't, so that the first couple of years was really figuring out technology, learning to, to record things and produce tracks myself with, with music libraries, like you were talking about Spitfire and, and then I started working with a composer called uh, Jeff Rona is his name. He was a, he was a pretty big composer. Uh, he worked with Hans Zimmer for a while at Remote Control, and then he moved out on, on his own and was scoring some big films. But he was also getting a lot of like TV, ESPN type shows. And I remember the, like the second or third week I was there, he got in a 30-minute ESPN documentary about Pelé. And he's like, oh, you're the the Brazilian guy here, you should do the music for this. So I right, jumped right in and I right away started like writing music for, for TV for him, like additional music and writing other things. And at that time, the trailer music was a big thing. Like they used to hire composers to write music for, for trailers. Nowadays, most of the music is written ahead of time and then they have multiple libraries to pull from. But mm -hmm. at the time, they were still sometimes like scoring trailers uh as the trailers were being edited or they were they also started this process of building the library so they would hire a bunch of composers to write several tracks in like oh romantic comedy style action adventure whatever it is so they had a library that they could just pull from when the when the trailers came in and would that be uh, just to just to briefly get technical would those be like libraries where you've got all these different styles and then you've got you know two minutes one minute uh, 30 15 six seconds yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, and and with the trailer dynamic, because it's very different from 
from scoring film. It's like it has to build a certain way and it has to have breaks in the middle for the big like explosion or the comedy, the little comedy bit. And then the music starts again and builds it. So it has a very specific dynamic. So I started working with Ant Farm a lot and I started working with other music libraries, doing some com commercials. So I left uh, Jeff Ronan. I started sort of doing these smaller gigs on my own while at the same time I would always go to Brazil and say, uh, visit the production companies there and say, look, I've trained, I've, I'm, I'm in Hollywood, I'm working there, trying to sell myself and, and like pretend like I was a, a big shot, which I, I wasn't at the time, and say, oh, I'm scoring in Hollywood. I know there are several great musicians here in Brazil, but there are very few people that specifically do music for, for visuals, you know? And then some of the gigs started, started coming from Brazil, like some of the bigger movies, some of like interesting documentaries and things. So I started scoring from here, scoring a lot of Brazilian things until I got the, the Elite Squad movie. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but the first Elite Squad was like the, the biggest thing, the biggest movie ever. Well, the second one was the biggest movie ever in Brazil, but the first one, there was a piracy issue and the movie leaked and they they estimated that 20 or 25 million Brazilians had seen the movie before the movie even got to theaters. Oh, wow. I remember going to Maracanã like the week before the release of the movie and people were screaming lines at the players from, from the movie, lines from them. So it, it really became this cult phenomenon, uh, this movie. And it, and it went to Berlin against movies like There Will Be Blood, huge movies in, in Berlin. And we won the Golden Bear. So we won the number one prize in, in Berlin. And that really was the shit. That movie was basically the shift in my career. Not only that filmmaker, Jose Padilla, who brought me into that movie, came here and then started doing a lot of bigger things over here. And we've been partners forever and working together forever. But also it opened everyone's eyes to the people who were involved involved with that movie. And then I started getting, I got an agent here in, in, in LA and started getting more and more gigs. And that was 2000. We did the movie in 2007, but the movie came out 2008 and it won Berlin in 2008. So that's when the shift really started happening, that I started getting uh, more more interesting projects and, and working more and more here. I was just doing a bit of mental arithmetic, which is why I was checking the ceiling there to think, yeah. okay, 45 now, so 35, 2011, so wind back. So, you know, was, that must have been... Um, quite a blessing at such a young age being in your early 30s and having a career take off as a composer because many composers don't take off until they're, you know, beyond 40. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have a, a bit of a different perspective. I don't see myself taking... I mean, it's always... In, yeah. in, in Hollywood, you're never... You've never taken off, no matter how how big you are. It's always a you know ups and downs, and, and right. interesting things happen, and then you hiatus, and then you wonder if you're ever going to work again, and then all of a sudden you do three huge things. So yeah. in our minds, it's not taking off. But I, when I look back and I look at everything I've done since then, from the eyes of any kid there wanting to do this, I mean, I can't I can't complain. I've been very fortunate and made a very a very good living doing what i love so it, so i guess i guess you're you are right but it just sounds weird like taking i do know yeah I, I know what you mean because um where if, if you're making a living doing music and i'm 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 i we're nowhere near your level in this business but 
we make money making music for commercial, which probably mm-hmm. puts us in the sort of top 5% of people who earn from music. So the point is to most people, exactly. they say, you've got the dream job and yes. you're set for life. How can you not be just rolling around like happy every day? And interesting, I just did the same thing to you by, uh, you know, inadvertently saying, oh, well, you know, you're established now. But from your perspective, you know, it's still feast and famine. It still uh, feels like you have to go and go and get the work in. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's not. I mean, fortunately, at this point, most of the work trickles in one, one, one way or the other. And I am able to say no to some things that I don't think I'm right for or that don't have a decent budget. I mean, if it's something I'm completely passionate about and I see a movie that just blows my mind, I'll do it for free. You know, I'll do it for cost sometimes. But cost but meaning if, to, if, the, uh, to the layman in the audience, the, the cost of recording the sessions, the, the cost co- of. Yeah hire musicians, whatever it is that the director feels the, the movie needs. If he feels the movie can be done with a, a couple of instruments here in my studio and just me, maybe I'll do it for free or help do whatever they can, they can come up with. But I'm still at that point where I'm really passionate about, about film and about, and if it's something that really clicks with me, I'll find, I'll, I'll try to find a way to do it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's feast and famine more in the sense of like, you do a really huge, like I did Robocop in 2014 and we went to, to air studios, which we were talking about earlier in, in, in London and recorded with 82 piece orchestra. And, and, you know, it's a $120 million movie. It's like any, anything you want in the, in the, and then I'm like, okay, so now when, when is the next one? And then, it's it's feast and famine famine in that sense you know i still i've had tremendous projects since then and i've had some really big projects like that but it's not like oh you do 120 million dollar movie and that's what you're doing from now on no we're going back to the indies and and getting paid little money to do the indies that you're passionate about because they're going to go to sundance and other filmmakers will see it and so it's all about building at least for me it's about building the career in an, an interesting way and getting projects that really speak to you and that you think will have an important life and will connect and, and people, whether it's industry people who bring you into the other jobs or, or just fans will, will enjoy and you, you get to have your name associated with that. But it's hard to be a Hans Zimmer and get all of the big movies in Hollywood. You know, it's really, it, it's, it, it's not something that happens to 99.9% of the of the composers. So is, um, in the eyes of most screen composers, is it true that Hans Zimmer is seen as the 800-pound gorilla in the room, you know, who's just got this center of gravity that everyone's going around? Yeah, for sure. He is, I mean, and don't get me wrong, he, he, he's a very talented man, a very smart man, and he's done, he's, he's put in the, the work, you know, and he came in at the shift in film scoring that just he, he was perfect for, and he's always delivered to any filmmaker. So whenever there's a problem with the score in, in, in Hollywood, whether it's the composer and the director, not getting exactly the, you know, not, not coming up with something that's, that they are both happy with, or whether they test the movie and the audience doesn't love it, or has a comment about the music and then, that composer needs to go. Usually it's like, okay, we know Hans Zimmer delivers it. Yes, he has a, a bunch of composers working with him and he can turn around the score in two weeks if necessary because he wow. just pull in all the, all the forces and pull in everyone into whatever project it is and get it done. So he has built an empire where things get done. But 
through a lot of hard work. I mean, he's a, a, a dedicated man who's been a, around for a long time and is probably the hardest working composer in the in the industry to this day. I, I very, say. very German of him to be like that, but just yeah. hyper efficient and very, very um, just solid. I mean, I've seen him live. He seems like a pleasant person, but when I watched his um, description on Mix with the Masters recently, and this is to your point of saying about the shift in scoring, which we're going to talk about in a second, um, he was saying that a computer is as much of a musical instrument that needs practice as a piano, a guitar, uh, or whatever else. And that he set himself, Hans Zimmer set himself up to be prepared for the big shift by getting very, very good at working with samples. Uh, yeah. That's what he attributes his part of his success to. And so, yeah, let's yeah. talk about that. Let's talk about the transformation. It, what what has changed? I, I think a, a lot has changed from the amount of music you have in a film to, I think, what goes along with that is if you have to like studios nowadays tend to fill a movie up with, with music, you know, they're a little afraid of leaving the, the conversational gaps, you know, the, the awkward silences. It's like, they feel like music helps everything at all times. So let's just put all the music wallpaper, everything in, and then there won't be silences. The pacing will always be good and, and things like that. But what comes along with that is the more music you have in a film, the less melody you can have. Because if you always have a melody playing, you're distracting the audience or you're distracting. So I think there was a shift to like less melodic uh, elements, you know, and also you have a lot more other elements, like it's more visually more impressive graphics, a lot of sound effects and, and sound design. And all of that is sort of, fighting for the audience's attention. So how much can you, before, if you listen to like a um, Hitchcock movie, the, how much work the music was doing, you know, you, you see that scene, that shot, like it's very slow and the guy just running and the, the music is blasting in the background. That's what was keep giving us that sense of urgency. Nowadays, I mean, the, they shoot scene, action scenes and it's, it's like, it's unbelievable what they're able to do between visual effects and, and, techniques of, of shooting and the pacing is there already the music is just there to give another layer and then the explosions another layer the sound effects the visual so it's really a, 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 a how do you call it like a blow to your your senses right watching a big movie like that so how much melody can you have how much so there was this shift to more like the music will help with the pacing the music will will give that sense of like edge of your seat and maybe color something but there was that shift of like less melodic less thematic scores less melody less the john williams uh, bernard herman type type of music you know which which is okay i do i do a lot of that too i like but whenever you're able to use melody to really connect with the audience it's to me it's the best and there there was also a major shift in technology where you're able some of the scores i do nowadays it's just me and maybe me and my assistant here in the studio and we deliver the whole thing and it sounds massive. You know, it's just the, the ability to create at, at a reasonable budget, have, have the equipment where you're able to record stuff uh, with very high quality, even if you're at a home studio. But with that, with technology also, there were a lot of more challenges that came about than where you're able, you have to be able to mock up the scenes. I mean, the director has to sit in the couch behind there and hear what the scene will sound like and it's supposed uh, i mean he is he expects to hear something as close to the final score as as possible you know and a lot of times we end up 
like I mock up a scene, they watch it and then they get used to that sound. And then we go and record an orchestra afterwards to replace that. And they feel like it's not like the demo maybe was better because it was, it was punchier and it was, so can we go back to the demo? I'm like, we spent a hundred thousand dollars to record this orchestra. We're going to go back to the demo. And then it's like a, a way of finding of like maybe combining some of the elements of the demo that are really tight and really, because in, in the, in my computer, I can have a 500 piece orchestra playing, it, I, I don't think it has the same feel like you don't feel it like you feel when you when you hear the players really playing it, you know. Mm. So maybe a combination of those two, which Hans Zimmer is also one of the guys who, like you said, started this. It's like he was the one recording the first sample libraries, but just for himself. It wasn't to sell like Spitfire or but he would go to London and record these amazing musicians playing and then he would build his own sample library just for himself and the people who worked at remote control. And then he would build like scores on top of like you would record the live orchestra but not take out all of yes. the all, all of what was mocked up you know he would keep some of that because it gives it more punch and more and sounds bigger and bigger and people so one of the more. transformations that that hans drove through was that the mock-up was no longer going to be the crap version before it became real the mock-up was actually for the first time integral to the score and perhaps that was driven by the technological developments the fact that you could have very good sounding samples in the mock-up for sure so at the same time while while the technology saves our lives and and allow us to do amazing things it also i mean uh john williams i think spielberg would hear the, the some of the themes on piano and then he would hear the final score at the scoring stage along with the composer you know yeah. that's it there weren't there weren't these dreadful rounds of approvals of like can you change this so oh, this is a little too so can you speed this part up a little bit and then slow down the other one and then really like they feel like we can do anything transpose anything do and and we can do almost anything with computers too but it it became a lot more like sometimes you're spending as much time crafting and making it sound right and 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 really mocking up that scene as you are writing it you, you know you don't just write a, a cue on piano the orchestrator helps you orchestrate it for orchestra, and then you go on the scoring stage and, re and record. No, everything is cuts are changing multiple times before they would only start scoring close to a final cut. Nowadays, even in a final cut, sometimes you've already scored with the orchestra, the movie's still changing afterwards. So you're still having to do final edits to, to the score at the dubbing stage when they're dubbing the movie. So every, everything has changed so much as far as as technology and budgets had, have sh shrunk surprisingly enough. I mean, before they would get, they would have more money to, to record. Now we have to be able to do more and the budgets in general have shrunk in relations to, in relationship to what they used to be. So no, but we have more opportunity, but we have more opportunities to do different stuff. So now there are video games, there's, you know, it's, it's endless. The amount of media and content being created that actually needs music. You know, I'm actually, talking to, well, I don't, I, I don't even know if I can say it, but I'm talking to a, a, a big company about scoring the opening of their, their podcast also, and they're, they wanted to, so it's like, it's just the number of things that are possible nowadays for, for a composer or for someone, there's a lot of content, content being made and a lot of, a lot of need for music. So it, uh, it, it, it opens up also the possibilities and the, the number of different things we can, we can do. I do know what you mean about the um, the ch change in the workflow that comes from the increased flexibility of the process. One of the composers that works for us today was having um, a reasonable challenge because um, the 
score was written for a 30 second ad that was hitting all the sync points and the client uh, keeps asking just for the edit to change and the vision moves around yeah. uh, but yeah. as you know vision isn't metered on the bar and so they're kind of surprised that you can't just move the music along with the edit do you have that on a big film project as well all the time all the time and like i said even after sometimes we're like no <clears throat> This is absolutely locked. We can we can score the orchestra. We can do that. And then we go and score the orchestra. And then you watch the movie again. And a lot of things changed. And then it's like trying to catch up and re-syncing, re-reworking on sync points and and things like that. Yeah, it happens, it happens all the time. And so if there if there, if there's been a let's say a two and a half hour movie or two hour movie that's been re-edited, how long will you have to spend? Um catching up with all those sync points? You know, will it be like a four or five days of work just doing that? Depends the amount of react. Usually we work like in chunks, like in reels. We still split, even though we're not really using film most of the time, we're still splitting a film up in, in reels and working in, in different sections. So a lot of times, especially the late changes, hopefully it's not a change to the whole movie. It's like, oh no, we had to change the ending, tighten the scene. And, and then it's just a couple of cues that you have to move around a little bit and everything else can just get shifted i mean the scenes haven't actually changed they just get shifted as like to five seconds earlier or five seconds later but the scene is still playing the way it is if it's a completely rehaul and like re-edit then yeah it can take a few days for for us to to yeah i'm, I'm at a, a situation where i can have like a lot of times when things are being re-edited and we're, we're working early on i'll write to the scene and then while i'm writing the other scenes if there are changes to that scene like my assistant will 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 readapt the scene and I'll look at it again or, but I'm, but I'm not most of the time, if they're happy with what the music is there, I'm not having to just redo it over and over and over myself. I can bring in people who can assist me with that while I'm able to continue to output music. Cause if we were just to, especially I hear uh, the other day, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine, Heitor Pereira, a Brazilian guy also who's been doing a lot of animation the amount of changes in anime, they start scoring earlier on, like he would do a 10 minutes scene. And by the end, he gets to the, by the time he gets to the end of the scene, he's already, he hasn't even sent the music. He's getting a new cut for that same scene. You know? And you could spend your entire time just reworking pieces that you've written and not get to the end. You have to, especially a movie that has time constraint or that's coming out at certain if you don't do three minutes of music or two minutes of music of approved music a day, you just don't get to the end. So you don't really have time to be, we either say, look, let's wait. You have the basic, basic music there. We can cut the, chop the music up with the scene and leave it there. And in the end, I'll go through the whole thing and readapt it. Or, but if, if they're expecting to have it tweaked as we go along, then you really need a few people helping you out to, to, to do those those cuts otherwise you just don't get to the to the end so it's as if you do the um initial composition the initial ideation it's your harmonies it's your melody production elements as well you need to have te a team of assistants that you trust to understand the way you intend things and you can just pass that stuff off and say if it changes you're on you're on the changes now i'm going yeah. further ahead in the film yeah, yeah. Usually we're we're always overseeing it too, right? It's like it's our. So I'm watching the scene. I'm giving I'm giving notes myself, like I'm getting notes from from other people. So there's a lot, and a lot of times you have you have so much going on that there are also like people who will come and write additional music for you. It's like I can't 
do all of this music that they need in this amount of time. Here are the, my main themes. Here, this is the sound of, of, of the score. And then you, you bring in someone to write for a couple of specific scenes or you already have the theme for those scenes. And it's like, can you just work this theme into that scene for me while I'm doing these five other scenes that I have to get to? So that's, and that's something that I think, I don't know if it started with Hans Zimmer, but that Hans Zimmer has been a master of, you know, he's, he can get five major motion pictures at the same time with a very tight schedule and he can get it all done because he, he created this, this empire really of people there and doing their own films and doing their own projects and all being major composers, but that they, they can also all come together when, when it's needed to, to crank something out or to work on 10 different versions for one scene that they're having problems with. And then the director can watch 10 different options and just say this one, I like this wow. one. Wow. Would you say that's like a sort of a well-kept secret about Hans Zimmer, which is that it says, you know, music by composed by Hans Zimmer, but there is a team working on it. Yeah, I don't think it's a secret. I think he's, maybe he doesn't talk about it everywhere, but I think he's, he's honest. Well about, and there's also like additional music. Usually most of the movies, if you watch the end of, uh, of the, all the credits, there'll be like additional music by and the names of the composers. And, and it's, it's, I mean, it's not just Hans Zimmer. Everyone does it. Every busy composer nowadays, I'd say, most likely has an additional music guy or a couple of additional music people who are helping out and sometimes even writing music for, from scratch for them. You know? So I suppose, well, let's perhaps um, dispel the myth for young composers who might be watching this with the aspiration of getting into the industry that it is not um, the industry that it was in the late 20th century where, as you'd say, you'd get a locked edit and you would, you know, write your score and then, you know, play bits of demo and then go to record it. It's an entirely different uh, ball game. It is. It is. And it takes a lot more or preparation or at least understand. I mean, we're wearing, as you can tell from our conversation, multiple hats. I have to be able to record and mix and, and do a mock-up myself besides writing the music yes and then i have to be able to oversee sort of a, a small business that's going that has other employees that are also working towards the same thing and oversee them while i'm also talking to the the producers and discussing scheduling and discussing where we're going to record with who we're going to uh, how many musicians do we need so it really it, it it takes a lot of hats i'd say most of the successful composers in hollywood are not necessarily the best composers in the world but they are the composers who can get it done they're the most who efficient obviously, who, who are talented who who have a broad spectrum are able to work in several different genres are quick can deliver are on top of the money don't sit around waiting for inspiration you know it's a very different industry than music for music you are really serve especially when you're working with a with a big company you're you, they expect you to be professional on time deliver what's what's expected and be cool with with notes with redoing things multiple times with you know that's really something else that this mock-up has <clears throat> has brought this uh, is just oh no it, it, like you write them spent all day you, you spend all day you write this beautiful piece of music that you think is perfect for it yes. and then the director yeah. listens for it in 30 seconds it's like eh, i like it but it's can we try something else and you're like yes Yes, the answer yeah. is always yes. You know, of course, the, as you build a relationship, and if it's a director you've always worked with, or if it's someone, hopefully they're hiring you for your creative input, and you can 
you can push back a little bit or you can say, let's let it sit there for a couple of days, see what you think. It's different yep. from the temp. You got used to the temp, so maybe this will, will start working for you. But ultimately, it's their vision or whoever, the, if it's mm-hmm. the showrunner in a TV show, if it's the director in a, in a movie, if it's the game developer, whoever it is, you're, you're working with, with someone else, for someone else and for a bigger a greater good than just the, your music, you know? So it doesn't matter if it's not the most beautiful music I can make or if there's not even a hummable melody in it. It is what serves the, the movie and what the director's vision or whoever's vision combined with yours, hopefully, will be for, for that thing. And that's what you're working towards. So that's a very different dynamic for like kids who think, oh, I'm going to become a film composer and write my music and record with orchestras and that's it's not exactly like that you're doing and redoing things multiple times and annoyed sometimes with with directors who think they know about music and it's like no can we put a trombone there instead of this or can we so it's like you're also a a psychologist you're like the last guy involved in the film who can help the director make that film perfect you know fix the scenes that they that they are not happy with or do so there's a lot of expectation put on your shoulders that you can help and you can and you and you have to be able to say yes we'll we'll get there you didn't like this one no problem we'll we'll do it again it'll be much better you know so it, it it's a it's a skill set it's a combination of things that allows you i think to succeed in this industry and to keep and to keep working and and it's not necessarily the i don't consider myself even close to the, the best composer or especially orchestral composer. I'm not really a John Williams type of guy who writes pen and paper for, for orchestra, but it's about finding your voice, finding your, your style, hopefully having a, a signature that people start noticing and, and go to you for, and then you're able to deliver all of this other uh, things that they, that are expected without being said, they are expected of a, a film composer. Yes. Oh, uh, Video yeah, game, TV. absolutely. One thing, one theme that's been running through this is the idea of uh, the reality of the, the job versus the uh, expectation of the job. And one thing that sounds consistent is the, the, the process handling, the handling of the director or the client it sounds very, very similar to the way we do things. We're on a much smaller scale, as we said. But one thing I'd be interested to know is we're always uh, at, our, at our level fantasizing that, well, once you're in film, it's this land of plenty and it's much more straightforward. And we won't have, crucially, and this is the, the thing that... Um, that has bothered me most throughout the last five years is there's all, you, you, the job's never in until it's done and you know yeah. and and you're paid there's always a sense that you could be switched out at the last minute and say well yeah. sorry we're just going to go another way is that still the, the case when you're working on a movie oh yeah especially in especially in the big movies if you're not Hans Zimmer of course like we were talking about especially in the big movies yeah you feel like your job well during Robo- Robocop, we had several, I mean, I was brought in by that director, was a Brazilian director who directed the Elite Squad movies that I talked about early on. So then he he made a move. He's also living in, in the US and he gets hired to do this huge movie for MGM. And he's like, oh, I want to bring my guy. And they're like, uh, who's your guy? And, that, and we've got 2013. Hmm. It's like, oh, and, and not only that, he wanted to, like, he has a, whatever, 12 weeks to do the director's cut. 
And then he's like, I want to do the director's cut and I, ha- I want to have your music in there. And then we're going to test the movie like that. So he, he wanted to basically finish the movie without the big visual effects and all of that. That comes in the end. But the, he wanted to have the movie as close as possible uh, in 12 weeks with his edit and my music. And, and I would get calls from MGM every day. It's like we haven't heard anything. We haven't approved anything. If we test the movie with you, which they were helping me. I mean, they weren't, they weren't, the, they were trying to help me say, look, if we test your, the, mu- the movie with your music in there and there's any comments about not loving the music, it's likely we would need to replace you. You know, they were sort of like explaining to me the situation, but I, at the same time, my loyalty is with the filmmaker whom I've worked on several movies before and who's asking me, no, let's, let's do it. I want to have your music in there. I want to be able to test so it's like, but you never know whether you're going to make it or whether you're going to be replaced, whether they're going to call. We keep talking about him as if he's the evil guy, but no, the Hans Zimmer, who's the, the hero probably who comes in to the save the day for the, for the studios, at least. They are investing $120 million into this thing. They, they can choose, you know, ultimately. I mean, hopefully they, like we talked about, they respect the filmmaker's vision and allows the filmmaker to have his do his film but ultimately it's their money so it's it's it can be a hard process so especially in big movies like that if you're not an established name with hundred million dollar movies it can be very stressful and it, it's become a thing where even the big composers get replaced all the time you know a lot of times it's like you have very little time to to it's rare nowadays that they bring in a composer very early where you're seeing early cuts and thinking it usually it's like the film is almost edited locked which is mm-hmm. never is like i said yeah, it's yeah. changing forever but in their minds the film is always locked okay let's bring in a composer to do this whole thing in two months yes and then it's like two weeks go by and he's delivered a few themes and the director is not crazy about it or the studio is not crazy about okay next bring in someone else yeah okay next bring it even the big guys i mean they get replaced all the time this industry is very cutthroat and very tough in that sense that it's it's hard for them to communicate musically exactly what they want uh and you have to come up i mean you come out of the blue you've never heard of the project you're watching the movie you have to crank something out right away if you don't hit it a home run right off the bat a lot of times it's like they don't have time they're like let's just see what someone else would do and yeah. bringing someone else so it's yeah it can be tough in that sense so no there's never job security in any aspect of it i feel when you have more time when it's more thought out when they know they go for you because they like what you do and then they bring you in earlier and it's it's never a bad a bad experience you know the thing is it's become an industry where no we do this here and this here and then the music in the end and it has to take place this way and a lot of times they have end up having problems uh, yeah. finding the right person or getting the right voice out of the right, even the right person. Sometimes it takes a while for them to find the right theme or we have to rewrite things a few times to be, to get there. Now I'm guessing as well, another problem is when you're brought late onto a project and they're saying, can you just get this done? Um, mo- most composers don't have the luxury that uh, Chris Nolan purports to offer which is uh, Chris Nolan says he doesn't use temp music I'm guessing when you're yeah. brought on late the whole thing is just saturated with temp and they're saying yeah. just do these things yeah yeah a lot of times they don't they don't say just do these things they think they're open 
to like having your creative voice in there, but then you start doing something and it's, they're so used to hearing the other one that they're like, yeah, but the temp used to, I'm not wanting <laughs> you to copy the temp, but the temp used to do this. Is there a way to, so you have to find the elements, try to find the elements that they love about the temp or that they got used to in the, in the temp and try to incorporate that without moving as close as possible to the track, you know, because otherwise it's just a pastiche. They pulled like music from, 10 different movies and put it every everything in the and all of a sudden if you start copying every not only you're going to get sued and you're not going to have your signature or your voice in there but but it's going to become like a mishmash of different things so it's it always it, it's a but I, i'd say most of the times the filmmakers bring you in with hopes of like no I, i want you to do something new i don't want you to copy that but it's just natural they get so used to hearing that music behind that seen that sometimes it's tough to introduce something new and to that's why i always say keep it in there listen to it for a couple of days yep if if i have that relationship to tell the director leave yes. it in the cut just watch with it for a couple of days see what you if you if it grows on you if it doesn't we'll do something new but i think it's the right thing for this scene usually if it's like a, a good a good director a guy who's been working in this industry for a while And he's telling you no, and you don't have a previous relationship with him. You don't just push, but you do a few a few versions until he's happy. But if you have a, a working relationship and you're able to say, I, I think it's the right one. Can we keep it in there just so you? And some a lot of times they, they it grows on them. A lot of times you still have to to redo it. But at least it gets that temp out of the way, and then they maybe can open and start thinking about other things. So when you introduce a third piece they will be more open to it than just being glued to that, to the original temp. You know, that they, And the, pro the, the process of trying to help them get unstuck from the temp is really interesting and sounds quite familiar. Um, it, uh, recently I produced a record for an artist and of course you're working with these mo uh, demo mixes the whole time. Very rough and I'm no mix engineer yeah. so you kind of got an idea of it. And I send it to my guy in the Ch Czech Republic he's a great pop, uh, pop mixer comes back and the first experience is always Ooh, I don't know. It sounds different. I, and even yeah. though the other one was bad, I'm used to it. And so it sounds like you do a similar thing, which is we yeah. say th three listens. First one is a palate cleanser. Second one, yeah. you start to notice stuff. And then the third one, you're actually listening to it. Yeah. Yeah. Even, I mean, we're all, we're all like, I think it's a human thing, right? Like I said, a lot of times we record the orchestra and then afterwards they're like, oh, it sounds different. I like the, the, the demo better. And it's like, no, mm -hmm. it's just getting used to change. You know, I think humans are, have a hard time getting used to, to change or to, or to something new. And my wife always says when she buys a new piece of furniture or something new and I get in the house, I say, oh, I don't like it. She's like, you just don't like change. Wait, you, you <laughs> like it in a couple of days. And it's, it's true. I guess it's our, our nature. It's, And then we, as we get used to it, or as we learn that that's the way we are, we also start trying to, to, to act differently. But I do that all the time. I usually write, I'll write, let's say, two pieces of music in, in two scenes in one day. And then I just go away from it. And then the next day I come in the morning. First, time, first thing I do is take a listen and see if I still had the same feelings I had about it the previous day. And a lot of times it's like, oh, no, I need to change this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, no, this is wrong altogether. Or, yeah, great, this is perfect. But it's like it's always important to try to take some time, especially when you're producing a lot and doing a lot of music in a short amount of time, to, like, listen again before you send out and say, yeah, I think, I think this, is, this is right. 
Well, yeah, because presumably you'll be working such long days that by the end your ears are quite fatigued and you're not noticing some things that you yeah. would notice the morning after. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you, I, not, I'm not proud of it, but I, nowadays, I, like people are always like, "Oh, so what? What new albums are you listening to? What cool?" And it's like usually when I'm in like a pro producing a lot or when I, I have I'm on a tight schedule, I'll listen to podcasts. I'll listen yes. like. A, news radio or things like that in my car i don't really listen to music because it's like you you're with music all day long and then your ears need need that break or need the or even like when i while we watch netflix while we have two young ones two young hmm. girls uh, six and three so when we get to watch our shows it's usually after they're in, in bed so it's like the volume is very low and you can barely hear the music so i'm like i'm watching these shows and not not paying attention to my my colleagues or to the work they've done and i realize a lot of them are doing this, the same or most people are doing the same with with my work you know but hopefully when it's heard properly it it, it gets you even more into the story and and it just becomes a different thing when you're able to really immerse yourself into the the show the way it's supposed to be you know nicely nice t nice tv nice sound system and a decent volume you'll, you'll get a lot more from the experience i'm presuming by the time the music goes to the dub mix that's it's it's away from you at that point you're not working with it anymore uh yeah most of the times i go to the dub at least like i'm not there the whole dub but i'm i go in the end for like final notes or mm -hmm. to try to help the score a little bit especially in like bigger movies they tend to like the the sound editor is always there and uh, and he's the one who did the this this crew like the sound design the explosions the things like that so i feel like the music is always being brought down and the other work yes. is is yes. getting so we're i i like to always go in the dub in the end and say look this scene really needs we need the music to push a little more or the director is also there and i'm like don't you think this scene should be like everything else almost like all the way down and music it should really be about the music and sometimes you win some of those battles and you get the mix more and i'm not just fighting for them i'm really working for what's best for the film yeah but but i think i think the music should be heard in in most of the scenes and that's the reason what the reason why the music is is there right but for some scenes you can keep it very low and it's just giving the little coloring but in some scenes it, it is about what's going on with the character and you and the music is is helping tell that story so it, it is about the music it shouldn't be buried behind everything else that does sound so, so familiar though because even even yeah. over here in in you know in the work we're doing in advertising the uh, hierarchy of mix is always it's like voice sound design and then music is seen as a bed and i think that could be to do with what you mentioned at the very beginning which is that we're in an era where everything is kind of overcomposed music is through everything and so it's seen as something that just underpins the dialogue yeah. and the spot effects yeah yeah i find myself all the time saying telling directors i don't think this music i don't think the scene needs music i think the acting is so good i think uh, can can we my my feeling is when the music comes in it should say something you know if you have two hours of music in the background and go from one piece to the other you, it just becomes background music. It just becomes like elevator music, you know. Even if it's very good music, it just it doesn't say something when it comes in. If you have a movie that has like a scene with nothing, and then all of a sudden the music starts creeping in, you you feel it. Like if you there's something different, there's something going. What are they? You're not thinking about it, but subconsciously it's it's affecting you and it's saying something. When it's just wall to wall, you you, you just lose that 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 element very much. So I think so. I'm always 
a lot of times I'm, I'm telling them, I don't think we should have music here. Can we have a bit of silence here? We're coming from like two huge cues back to back. I don't think we need any music for like these, these two next scenes. And even though a lot of times it's better for me, not that I'm getting paid more if I write more cues. I mean, video game world is that they, they pay by the minute, but film world, they agree on a fee and however much music is in there, you're doing for that, that fee. But uh, in royalties in the end, I mean, yeah, the more music you have in the film, the more uh, performance royalties you'll get in the end. So the more ASCAP will I, pay out. <laughs> the more ASCAP will pay out yeah, or BMI. Or BMI, yeah, of course. Yeah, or PRS over here. We get a lot of PRS. Yeah. But um, yeah, the fact is we've been talking for an hour and we haven't even talked about games. And I really wanted to touch on a bit of the difference between uh, those two cultures uh, because I can't keep you all day although I can see clearly that I could keep you all day and we just keep going around the houses and talking about the craft but there's a lot left to learn let's just focus on that for a minute what's the difference between scoring for game uh, and how different is the process you know is scoring gameplay different to scoring cutscenes and, and film yeah it's yeah that's exactly that's one point I always illustrate like the movies most games nowadays big games they have like a movie within the game, right? They have all this, the, they're very rich in story. They're really investing in, in, in story. I think most video game companies. So there's this whole set of characters and backstories and things that are going on that you're told as you go through the game. So you have missions and then in between the missions, you have the cutscenes, the cinematics. And that part is very much like scoring a movie. You know, you, you get the scene and, in this, I mean, in most cases, video game companies are good about that. They say this is locked and it, it is locked. I've, I've had to change very, almost non-existent the amount of times that that they had they made changes after they told me it's locked, different from the from the movie studio. But so that part, that aspect is very is very much like scoring a movie. But that's usually the last part of the of the game when you've already been working with the game for a while. But the the missions. And the open world, in case of Far Cry, there's a lot of open world where you can be, you can decide not to go do missions, but just walk around in, in this amazing world that's created by the designers and like steal a tank and ride around Yara or, or play, fight an alligator or play with the, I mean, it's endless, the, the possibilities in the open world. And those are very different from scoring a movie, especially the missions. Everything has to be able, you, you usually, a mission will be divided in three stages or four stages. And then you have like the, the stealth element in the beginning, then the, the, the comp, the, yeah, just this, especially in the, I'm talking about like first person shooter type games, right? The fighting game. So you have the stealth element, then you have like light combat or like stress, uh, that they call, then you have combat and then you have to have different intensities of combat as more enemies get into. And all of these loops, I mean, the guy can just leave the player there and make a phone call and the game is going. So the music has to be, once the music starts, it doesn't stop in a mission usually, unless you walk away from the, from the mission. So that music has to be able to loop. So we're usually working with like two or three minute pieces of music that will be able to loop, but we also introduce new elements through different stems that come in. So it keeps it interesting and keeps it fresh, you know, not just hearing exactly the same thing from beginning to end. 
but it builds in like when you bring this element, it builds and then it comes back down. So the game engine will, will, will program and release your stems according to what's going on, on in, in the screen. And then once you go past the, the, stes, the, the stealth uh, part of the mission and you actually engage in fighting with, uh, with, with an enemy, then it kicks in the combat one, let's say. And then that has to loop until you, it gets to a more intense combat or to a different part of the mission. So it's always switching and that's the, the game engine, which I, I learned a lot about during Far Cry and the other games I did. I, I wasn't brought in as much and had no idea how this even worked, but the game engine will release your stems according to what's going on in the game. And not only that, the same piece, let's say combat two has to play, has to be able to play smaller. So then you have just a stereo stem or it has to be like more enemies came along. Then you release another stem and then it, it builds, it becomes something bigger. And then you release uh, tanks come along and then it's like a, a third stem of like, high energy percussion and then so all of a sudden the music is changing it's the same piece of music it's in the same tempo but it can play very differently if you have just one stem or if you have five stems playing at the same time you know and is that, is that something that um is that a process where you know a lot of creative potential was realized sort of late not not, not later on but of course when a technology first arrives you're not going to be able to make use of all the potential that it has because you have to just yeah. start doing stuff and experiment but it sounds as if the method of releasing music during the game has gotten much more sophisticated over the last sort of decade or so and what it you're has. describing kind of sounds a little bit like you know you've got an ableton session where you've got one block playing and then you can put another one over the top of it and a third one and then you can pull one out and you've got the first and the third and you know all these yeah. different ways of manipulating the musical experience um because game game music cues when i was growing up in the early 2000s were very glitchy you know yeah 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 it is and i'd almost say sometimes a lot of times it's like deconstructing it also it's like make an intensity nine combat scene so full-blown blasting combat scene and then it's like okay how do we trim how do we bring this down how do we make like a an intensity three out of this intensity nine. So you like, you take stuff out and then you decide, okay, what should be stem one? What should be stem two? What should be stem three? So a lot of, sometimes it is like, oh, start small and add to the top. And sometimes you do it as big as you can and actually find ways to trim it down and to bring it down. But, but if you're in a combat three in a, in a, in a mission, it's probably gone through combat one and combat two already. So when you're combat three, it's not going to, like become very quiet it just it can it can have a few extra layers of to to go even more over the top you know but at the same time at that point there's like explosions and gunshots and things so it's again the the, the thing about i don't know how a job i haven't been involved with mixing at all or seeing what goes on and like mixing these games but it's like i don't i it's it's an overwhelming uh for me to think about even the amount of elements that are going on and that are being mixed in real time and the game engine is doing all the balancing and doing all the, it's like, it's, it's amazing to think what goes on behind the scenes of, of like a video game after everything is delivered, the amount of tracks that there are in there. And it's not like mixed over a month and then you always hear it that way. Like it is in a movie, you know, it's mixed every time you play the game engine is doing a balancing of, of what it's supposed, what it's, it was programmed to sound like. Yeah. So, yeah. It's funny, we, we had a feeling when we were talking in the office uh, recently that the composing for a video game is 
the new frontier. It's the it's the new yeah, yeah. It's 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 where not. I wouldn't say it's what film used to be because I don't know. I can't even qualify a statement like that. But it sounds like certainly from you know watching you talk about the two things, there's a lot more grunt work in in film and having to run around and, and put out fires and in game there's a lot more exciting potential that we're just discovering yeah and also the amount of that i don't know if every experience is like that like i said my experience in games are limit somewhat is somewhat limited i've done <clears throat> i've been involved with three three big games and but on far cry i was brought in at the very beginning two and a half years ago to wow. start thinking about the music they had they had like pictures or graphics, like designs of what the character should look like, what Yara looked like, what the, and then I, we had meetings and narrative briefings about what the story is, what the backstory is, who the characters are, but they were at the infancy, you know, they were starting out and then they're like, okay, maybe we should do a few themes for Anton, who's the, the president of Yara, this island that this thing takes place. It's like a Caribbean island going through a revolution and, and I'm, I'm writing these themes based on photo, a photograph of him or maybe some light, small, like short footage that they have, like the game designers put together about this guy. And then that gets put into the game or that gets played in a meeting with all the designers there. And then they're like, okay, we're thinking this is the sound of Anton. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, wow, this is... And then they, it starts influencing the, the designing of the game too. You know, what I really wow. felt in this game is that that back and forth, it's like, let's do themes for the revolution and oppression. It's like very open. It's like, just what, what, would you, what do you think the sound of Yara and the revolution should sound like? And it's like, write three different pieces of music, two minute pieces of what the revolution should sound like. And then they were telling me they played in this conference room like 200 people in there before covid obviously mm. 200 people in there it's like this is this is the revolution and they play the music and everyone is like oh this is everyone's like applauding i was very excited to that's what they they told me everyone got so excited and and it sort of feeds their process too so it's not just me responding to what i see on screen but it's really been a collaborative thing where they're getting my stuff and then they're moving on listening to that and designing the rest of the game based on their, those sounds also. And, and the other way around, which it always is me getting inspired by the story and the visuals and the things to do my, my job. And it's, yeah, almost three and a half hours of, of music uh, of my music alone. Besides, mm-hmm. I know the, the audio director had like uh Caribbean bands playing like different music that would be playing on the streets. They licensed yeah. a lot of music that would be playing in the cars. You like you, you get a so car like diegetic on the radio. The game. Die- yeah. Exactly. But of of my score alone, there's oh, three three and a half hours of music. Yeah. Wow. So it's take note, young composers. Games are the place to go for that. You know, just that it sounds it sounds exciting, and it like I say, I've been sort of paying attention to. Uh, the you know the the way you've been talking and there's just much more animation and like just potential <laughs> in this realm. So, but it sounds as if and um, you know I'm gonna have we're gonna have to come into land in a moment um, yeah. uh, because it's been a great conversation. I hope we can do this again because there's more to talk about. Of but, course, um, yeah, it'll be my pleasure. But it sounds as if just to close this off for the uh, anyone in the audience watching this with a kind yeah. of aspirational thing, there's no I- direct route into it. No, I don't think, I mean, I get a lot of people now contacting me and saying, I want to be a composer for video games. I want to write, what should I do? 
And I think what I always tell young composers is the reason I'm here is because I didn't limit my possibilities starting out. You know, if you say I want to compose for games and that's the only thing you're, you're really limiting your possibilities of like getting good training and like, you know, working on shorts with young filmmakers and doing things like you learn doing to do music for video. You can go to school and you can get the tricks and techniques. And, and of course you need to know composition somewhat. That's something else. People think now they have all these loops and all these libraries and it's like, Oh, I can be a film composer. And it's like, yeah, but who's going to call you if your sound is exactly the same or if we're hearing the same loops in your music as we're hearing on everyone else's. So after you've done the work and you have somewhat of a, a voice and experience in, in different styles and you've, you've written some music, it's like, do whatever you can. Start commercial. Look at my trajectory, you know? It's like trailers, commercials, documentaries, film. Then I jumped to film. Then I went back to TV. Then video games. Now it's like, if you limit yourself in any way, you're just doing yourself a, a disservice. So try to compose as much as you can and to work with as much, I mean, the, like we talked about content creation nowadays, it's the number of things being done out there and everyone needs music. And that's how the young, the young people are going to learn or working with other composers. Like, like, you know, usually it's a really good, not necessarily a good way in. Cause I, I think a, a small percentage of the people who come in as, as assistants end up sticking around and really being put through the, you know, all the, the shit that sometimes assistants have to put up with in, in like the bigger studios, I'd say. Not with me. I mean, me, it's just me and whoever's working with me will, will get a lot more information, I guess. But but a lot of times, I mean, a lot of the big composers nowadays started with Hans Zimmer as their as his assistant and, and are now writing some of the biggest films in, in Hollywood. And just going back to the previous question about whether film is the place to be or video game is the place to be. I think films, film are, films are going through a tough time right now. I mean, they're very, there are a lot of movies being made, of course, but very few movies are big enough or, or have, have a lot of, have a big budget. And those that have a big budget are usually going to the big composers here. So it's very, it's very hard to break into film and it is a stressful uh, you're dealing with a lot of money, people investing, which is with video games too. But video game companies are like younger; they have a different way of working, and uh, so so it's it's hard to get into film, and it, it can be stressful. But to me, it's still my my passion. You know, I got into it because I loved film, and and writing for a film that you really believe in, there's nothing like it, and to know that it's going to be out there like that forever. But but video games are fascinating. I mean, it's it's if if you get to do a triple A game, it's it's really well paid. There's a difference in the back end because you don't have performance royalties like you do in TV and 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 theatrical and, and like movies that get released, which is a big part of a composer's income. We can get into that. I know you wanted to land. I'm opening another can of worms here, but uh, royalties are a big part. I think in after you've established yourself somewhat, I'd say more than 50% of your income will be from, from royalties, you know, from performance royalties. If you, if you keep all your rider shares, we, we, we all should always fight for that and, and keep our, our rider share. Because we know full well uh, that there's always people come swooping in to try and get hold of some of the royalties. Yeah, there, yeah there's been, I mean, it's normal that a, a big company that's investing in the film will keep 
the publisher share, right? They they own the masters and they keep the publishing, which is is fair and reasonable, I think. But uh, there's been a trend of like some streaming companies trying to take the writer share also and saying, okay, I'll be, I'll, I'll pay you more up front, but I'll keep uh, the writer share because I don't want to do the accounting. I don't want to figure out and pay through ASCAP and do this, but but it is the bulk of their income after after several years working and, and a lot of stuff done. It, it it ends up being the bulk of your income going forward. So it's I think it's important. Of course, if it's a, a deal breaker and it's an important credit for you, you just do it. But ultimately, you should always fight to try and keep your your rider share because, yeah, like I said, royalties are a major source of income for us. But if you and video um, games, sorry, and video games. So video games don't have that yet. I think they're it's being figured out because like someone can play on Twitch for nine hours and there's like fifty thousand people watching him play on Twitch, and so that music is being publicly performed. So there is a discussion now about royalties going forward. YouTube, Twitch, all the all of these platforms, and but it's at, at its infancy and it's still yeah, being yeah, figured course. out as we've been. But um, the dream, royalty-wise, for any composer is to maybe be uh, Danny Elfman and do the Simpsons theme tune because that's probably just set yeah. someone for life, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, it's it's on every day, multiple times, probably. Right? Still, they're still making new episodes, but they're they have how many seasons that they? Yeah, and it's exactly. played worldwide. Yeah. So um, anyway, but yes, we'll uh, we'll pick up on that. Uh, next time and I, I'm, I'm, I'm committing to that there's going to be a next time because this has been very just uh, easy and, and a, a great conversation and, and, and we've you know hopefully uh, I've learned a lot I hope that a lot of people are going to tune into this uh, our YouTube channel just started picking up attention we had you know the first video to hit like 65,000 views the other day so hopefully we're going to make some good good content out of this but um, thank you for giving me this time thank you for giving me this knowledge um, and uh, best of luck, I suppose, with the uh, the upcoming release of Far Cry Six. It's not far away, is it? No, it's October seventh. I'm actually going to Toronto on the fifth. They're recording a documentary about the making of the, the movie, and they invited me to to come and play play some of the themes and talk about the making of the music. And I don't know how much of a party, but they'll have a little get together for the the release, and it's exciting to see. I saw them all before COVID, and then it's all been remote and now we're we're getting together so i'm going on the 5th to toronto for three days and the game's coming out on october 7th yeah yeah it's going to be good so um best of luck with all of that uh pedro bronfman i hope you have a great day and uh look forward to the next one thank you so much my pleasure yeah anytime take care bye bye thanks bye.